0: This is a solo episode. I did a bunch of these last year when I was scrambling for something to fill the time or if I had a particularly personal thing I wanted to share, like my episode about my experiences in New York. But um, I have plenty of episodes recorded, and so that's good. Yeah. Um, But I'm going to make a plug. Um, This is, as ever, Unstandardized English. I'm JBB Gerald. And uh, if you are interested in supporting the show on Patreon, the link is in the show notes. This will be episode six of season two. Um, And this episode is called The Best Friend, um, which is probably a title that might confuse you. um, And you'll see what I mean. But basically, I'm going to talk a little bit about the people who were... Nominally friendly to me, people who thought I was their friend and who, by any definition, were my friends, um, but who said things to me that were racist or white supremacist, um, never slurs or anything like that, and... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how my scholarship and my research in the most recent years has led me to understand that there is sort of an unspoken belief in eugenics, uh, whether they would call it that or not, that um, undergirds the, the particular type of racism they have. Because most likely they don't necessarily feel a particular antipathy towards black people in general. Or to any particular uh, group that they uh, are encountering. Maybe some of them do, but you know, racism isn't really about interpersonal cruelty. But I do think that a lot of people who have one black friend, or one Latinx friend, or one Asian friend, or whatever, um, they are happy to have one close relationship. But only because that person is what they there to be an exception from the race. Um, and when someone is an exception from the race, it allows their belief to be transferred onto everyone else in the race. Um, and the people, other people in the race, um, or the group that they're thinking of, deserve whatever life throws at them. And you can extend that pretty quickly into... These classes of people deserve to go away. And this person is an exception, so we'll save him. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, understanding, about how eugenics, or the belief basically that um, large of people need to die, uh, really undergirds the but-I-have-a-black-friend idea and how that has felt in in retrospect because I was that safe black friend for a lot of people growing up and I feel pretty dirty about it thinking about the fact that these people were low-key eugenicists. All right we'll get into it. So I'm recording this in the past. I mean, I know that's true for every episode because I can't record from the future, but um, like a pretty far back in the past, I recorded a bunch of episodes for this season pretty early on and I've been sliding them in every couple of weeks aside from the Lovecraft episode, which you hopefully have heard by now. Um, so I'm recording this on September 22nd and it is coming out the week after the election. Uh I didn't want to have one on the day of the election because I know I do Tuesdays and I wanted people to do whatever they were going to do that day. But the point is, as I record this, I don't know what happened last week. Um, Could have been amazing. Well, I don't know how amazing it could be. Um, Could have been positive news. Could have been terrible news. Or it could be completely undecided as of the time that you hear this after November 10th. So, Going into this discussion, just so you know, I have not sat down to have a sedate solo recording episode in the seven days since the election occurred. Uh, Maybe there's complete chaos outside, or maybe it actually didn't go so poorly. If we know anything about 2020, it's probably chaotic, even if it's positive. But just so you know. Um, so, this episode, and as of course, this is on standardized English, which, if you heard the intro, you know what it is, but I feel like I should keep saying that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the eugenicist's best friend, which is sort of an idea that I have here. And, you know, this is my show, it's all my ideas. But um, I want to think a little bit about some of the friendships I had and some of the relationships I had, not romantic ones, I mean, just interpersonal relationships. And, um, how it took me a very long time to understand the racism I was experiencing because these people were interpersonally nice to me. Now, anyone who listens to the show knows that racism isn't really necessarily about interpersonal cruelty. I mean, that's part of it, but it's the system that supports it, right? It's, you know, the quote that if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. And, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, how something became my problem, when, even though it was individuals. Um, and then to take a step back and think a little bit about how eugenics plays into this. Uh, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I think it'd be very difficult for you to be someone who listens to my podcast and not know what it is. But you know, eugenics is basically the idea, uh, well, it's the more codified idea of an ancient idea that uh, certain groups, um, certain lesser groups, uh, you know, just sort of, should be bred out, right? You know, we should just have fewer of these folks. It's not necessarily uh, the same as genocide by itself, but it's tied in. But basically it's um, it's the fastest way to think about it. It's how to make sure that reproduction in a human population uh, brings out good characteristics in people to improve the human race. Um, And what's interesting about it, for anyone who doesn't know, is that it was very popular across the United States and across just the Western world in general. Um, And then the Nazis did a whole bunch of stuff with it and people were like, I don't know about that. But when you think about what people say these days and um, the way people think about intelligence and the way people treat people based on what they think they deserve, eugenics never really went away. It just got quieter. It just seeped into the way that we build our knowledge, and speak to each other. But let me give you an example. I'm going to tell you two two stories. Um, So for those who don't know, I had a whole episode about my educational experience called Black and or Smart last year. Um, I think it was my fourth episode, if you want to go back and listen to it. But basically, I went to a lot of, you know, exclusive schools. And um, these are schools where I wasn't the only, but I was one of the only Black people there. Uh, and because I started going to these schools so early in life—I'm talking about age like two, three—it was kind of all I knew educationally um, for most of my life. And at the time, not just because you don't necessarily question things as a kid, but also because of what the schools tell you, um, you know, I thought that that those were the best places for me. In some ways, they were very helpful because I do feel like in certain ways I was challenged, but I also, I'm a sample size of one. I can't say that had I gone to a different type of school, I wouldn't have been challenged. Um, So I'm also feeding into their narrative. But not only were these schools exclusive in terms of being private, but they were also nominally, you know, schools like for the gifted or schools that were among the elite or whatever they want to call themselves. And that meant that Not only was I one of the only Black people, but now I'm, you know, this subset of Black and considered special in terms of being gifted. Now, I have a whole bunch of writing coming out about this in 2021, so I won't go too much into my feelings about gifted education, (laughs) which are not positive. But um, I am just going to tell you about two people. Um, The first person I'll tell you about is uh, a guy named Chris. These are pseudonyms, by the way, although... If you, you know me, you can probably figure who they are. Um, so Chris, I I, uh, I don't want to say I grew up with Chris. I knew him most of my life. Um, knew him since we were, we, you know, he went to the same school for however many years. He was in my grade. Uh, and Chris's father was a really prominent person in the school. Let's just put it that way. And we weren't really good friends before high school. Like I knew him. It was a small school. Everybody knew each other. But... Um, we weren't close or anything like that. And then just by chance, literally by chance, we were walking out of school at the same time on the first day of ninth grade in 1999. And we just happened to walk out of school at the same time and we decided to go to lunch together. You know, um, my school allowed us to go into the environs near school. I think there was supposedly a limit where you were allowed to go to a specific McDonald's and that was as far away as you were allowed to go. Probably because the kids were going to go to McDonald's anyway and they didn't want to stop us. So that was a the barrier, even though it was like eight minutes away. Um, but anyway, we walked out of school and we went and we got lunch together. Now, Chris, um, he lived near school uh, like a lot of my classmates did. I didn't. Not that I lived in any kind of bad neighborhood, but it just wasn't near school. Um, and, of course, what's, what is a bad neighborhood, right? But we can talk about that another time. Anyway, I really admired Chris. Um, I'd seen him from afar. I I just thought he was super smart, even among this group of people that everyone believed they were super smart. I thought he was even smarter. Um from what I knew about him, he was really talented at writing. He was really good at computers. And, you know, for reasons I'll get into, I always thought of myself as an averager and also ran, at least among the social circles I was in. I didn't think I was exceptional. I was exceptional in some other ways, but you know what I mean. I didn't think I stood above people. Um, So right from the first day, when I went to to talk to Chris that f- first day of ninth grade, I I tried to modulate my language a little bit, try to make it better. Um, this was al- this, this was not like even intentional, but I remember it happening within me and be like, "What are you saying, Justin? Why are you why are you changing how you're talking?" And, and so we were talking as thirteen to fourteen year olds do about girls in some presumably crude way, and he you know i i decided i you know i had to speak with with a higher level of vocabulary in order to impress him i really don't think he cared but um it was something that i thought that i needed to do and it was interesting the ways that i tried to model my behavior so that i thought he would you know welcome me into his little circle we became fast friends after that we were in the same english class and um we spent a lot of time together he had a really different life than i did um he basically got to do whatever he wanted to do like whatever he wanted to do um i didn't know too much although it made sense if his his dad was very important in the school that you know his family had some house on a mountain somewhere that they used to go to and uh he also didn't have a curfew remember we were like i was 13 he was 14. and this was just a really special thing to me to not have a curfew um no, I didn't really take advantage of this for a couple of years. But in ninth grade, um, this just made him seem really special. And, and, you know, before ninth grade, I was so comparatively innocent. I didn't really think anybody at my school did anything untoward. Um, I don't know why I thought that the kids at my school were innocent little kids. But ninth grade's when I figured out that the high school dance, which I think doesn't exist anymore, was just an experience for people to show up just hammered. They didn't show up. It was, the dance was from 8 to 12, and it only happened three times a year. Everybody would show up at 1130 because they had to make their entrance. These are like 14-year-olds, by the way. Um, they'd show up hammered. The teachers were there, which like that's a whole other level of like entitlement, I guess. And then they would go to some other party. I went to the dance once when I was in ninth grade, thinking that I would, you know, show up "quote unquote" late at nine o'clock. Literally, nobody was there. I sat there by myself till like eleven o'clock, and then they all showed up, hammered, and I was very confused. But anyway, he didn't have a curfew, and he starts hanging out with me. And I'm just like impressed by the fact that I've, I've gained my, you know, way into his circle. Um. And one of the things that was interesting about both of us that we bonded over was that we both were not particularly organized students. Um, we both had, you know, focus issues, uh, didn't keep track of our materials very well. Um, you know, the teachers would have to help us, but it was it was handled differently. Um, at the time, I didn't think much of it. Uh, but I know that the teachers always seemed deeply disappointed in me when I wasn't able to keep myself together. And I know for Chris, uh, he got a lot of patience from the teachers. I remember my friend's teacher, you know, asking him, Now where did we put it, Chris? Where do we put the homework? And he hadn't done it and it wasn't a big deal. But then when I, you know, hadn't done my homework, and let's be clear, sometimes I just wouldn't do my homework, and I should have. Um I usually got to talk to it from the teacher, and it was in my report card and so forth. Now, my school didn't really have letter grades, so the report card was all, like, written paragraphs. So that means if you didn't do your homework, it was just very specifically written about in, like, a full paragraph. Um, and that's the kind of thing that my dad especially looked for. So uh, I still couldn't get it together to be focused until I was in about 10th grade. And I just, in retrospect, noticed that we were treated differently. Okay. So... Chris's ability to sort of do whatever he wanted to um, also meant that whenever he put any effort in at all, he got a lot of praise. And again, I always thought he deserved the praise because I admired him. But one of the things that I started to notice was some of the things that he started to say about different groups of people. So when I think about different aspects of racism and different aspects of, of bigotry and oppression. Um you know, a lot of people think about slurs, right? And that happened to me a couple of times, but not from Chris. Uh and I was Chris's best friend. You know, after a time. Um or at least we considered each other. I considered him that and I think he considered me that. And he would tell me all the things he thought about different groups of people. Uh, I don't remember everything he said, but one of the things that he told me, and this sort of, this stuck in my mind, um, because it was meant to be a compliment, was he said that racism was wrong. Now, you know what podcast this is, so you know that that's not the end of the story. And I said, okay, yes. And he said, do you know why racism is wrong? Notably, this is a white boy speaking to me to teach me about why racism is wrong, right? Um, and I said... Why is racism wrong? Uh, you know, it's morally wrong, right? Like it's, it's like like abjectly wrong. Like it's, you know, wrong in that sense. He's like, no, it, it's because it's factually wrong. And then he goes on to explain that a lot of people think that black and white people have different levels of IQ, right? And it is true that certain people do think that. Um, and he was saying, but that's not true. So therefore, we shouldn't discriminate against black people. In the moment, that seemed fine to me uh, because he was saying we should not be mean to black people. And I'm like, yes, I'm a black person. That's good. You should not be mean to me. Um, But then when you think deeply about that, what he's really saying is if it were to be the case that there was some scientific proof that this group of people based upon their race, which again, race is, you know, social construct, but within the conversation we're having was inferior, then it would be okay to oppress them. Right. He happened to have read something or had a conversation or something, or maybe it was his dad. It's probably his dad. um, Just to have them explain that, you know, IQ didn't prove that black people were less intelligent, but, who's to say that it didn't prove based on this conversation that there was some group that was less intelligent and therefore they should be discriminated against. Right. You know, that's one of the ways that I think about eugenics because it's not as simple as what you're hearing about from these ice camps with hysterectomies and all this terrible nonsense. Um, it's, it's the fact that not only does he believe that, but he's telling me, right? So who am I, right? Who was I at the time? I was a 14 or maybe 15 year old black kid at this school. And I was applying or I would have been applying later to these types of colleges. Um, He doesn't actually seem to have any other black friends. There's a few of us in the school and, and they all know him, but I'm definitely the only one that was close to him. And it means that whenever he had a thought about race, I was the person he told. There's a value to that in that he doesn't have zero black friends. But when you only have one and the person is me, a person who at the time was really, really interested in gaining the favor of the you know dominant white group, um, you don't necessarily get a full spectrum of black people, let's put it that way. So what I came to understand is that I was basically proof positive of Black people not having a lower IQ to these folks, right? I'm going to back up and talk about why IQ is a problem in a second, but just within this paradigm, because I existed and because I was able to do certain aspects of school very well, then it was proof that all of Black people couldn't necessarily have lower IQs. But at the same time, it proved that the Black people who weren't there were less deserving than someone like me. Another conversation I had a little bit later is that, because once I started applying to schools, and I mentioned this a little bit in my Black and or Smart episode, but it's related to this, you know, I... I, um, people all of a sudden really wanted to have a conversation with me about affirmative action when they were applying to colleges. You know, apropos of nothing. Um and I was not that person who asked people about what schools they were getting into because I just I knew I was very nervous about getting into school and like in retrospect people like that silly Justin. okay fine. But um I was nervous. I didn't think I would get in. So I wasn't the guy who was going out to people like where you, where you where'd you apply? Where you, where? you know, people did that at my school. It was not a good Practice. But anyway, um, people really wanted to talk about affirmative action with me and tell me why they thought it wasn't fair. Um, Mostly, I think, to see if they could get me to agree with them so that, therefore, if something were to occur where they didn't get into the school of their choice, they would think that disagreeing with affirmative action was okay because Justin said so. Now let's be clear. I never did agree with them, but I think that that's what they wanted me to do. I didn't usually fight with them because I didn't want to fight with them. I wanted them to like me, but you know, in retrospect, I should have. Anyway, one of the things they said is that they thought affirmative action was unfair because it lets lesser people in. What does lesser people mean? Right. But I'm there like physically standing there and they say, But what about Justin? And then the other person says, well, Justin's smart. Now that means a couple of things. And again, I mentioned this in last year's episode. One, it means I'm an exception. And or it means that it's surprising that I could be an exception. Or they're saying affirmative action should go away and someone like Justin would still get in, right? So, So I'm saying it either means that if he gets in, even though I think it's bad, it's not that big of a deal. Or if we got rid of it, he'd still get in. It means a lot of things. But it's interesting that they only noticed the, the difference with me as they uh, started to realize that I would be potentially a threat to them. You know, that kind of intellectual threat. So let's talk about IQ for a second. Now, I had an argument with a professor last year. Last year? Two years ago. Last year, Um, because IQ, at least part of the creation of it, was to bolster eugenics. That's not the entire rationale behind IQ, right? But um, Francis Galton, who was one of the creators thereof, um, was a huge eugenicist. Huge eugenicist. And... You know, I remember in February, you know, on his birthday or his 100 and something birthday, you know, some society tweeted out like today is the birthday of Sir Francis Galton. And uh, people on the Internet now know like you bring up Galton, you're talking about eugenics. And if you don't mention eugenics, then you're just, you know, whitewashing history. He his birthday was February 16th. And I was hoping my son would be born that day so that a smart black child could. Make him upset in his grave, but he was born a couple of days later. <laughs> anyway, um, IQ is so normal to us as a concept that it's still the example that's used to talk about you know the standard deviation um, because it is a is one of the older standardized measurements, right? And it's true because when I first learned about statistics, it was what they used to say, you know, when a standard IQ, you know, average IQ is 100, the mean is at 100 and one standard deviation is 115, you know, that sort of thing. And the thing is if you look at the you know, the actual distribution <sighs> It's, you know, it's an easy way to understand the concept of standard deviation, and you need that to understand statistics. And that's so, like, you don't even think about the history of IQ when you're just learning, here's what this curve looks like, right? Um, and then I had an argument with the professor the following fall when I was talking about how I think that, it, you know, we should stop relying on it. Not only do I think it's kind of faulty sometimes, but also because of its origins, it, it's caused much more harm than it's caused good she didn't like that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's not an objective measurement, let's put it that way. But it was the measurement that my school used to get people into the building. And they used it for me when I was three. I don't know what a three-year-old IQ... Like, I think that they had me playing with blocks and they played... It was something like that. I put shapes in the right order quickly. I don't know. Um, and it's interesting that because I went to that school for so many years that for the entire time I was there, the headmaster, yeah, I know. Right. Um, Thought of me as this precocious child who put blocks together. So when he was like writing every year, you know, uh, he would write up the opening page of your report card and he would talk about that. So I feel like I never really got to be even a teenager there because I was seen as a precocious child. But anyway, the point about me talking about IQ is that, you know, you can get marked with this number and IQs of course can change over time, but people don't really think about that. And it's basically saying that if you're below a certain number there, we don't have to treat you as if you are equal to others, right? When, People say that if you're below a certain IQ, you are basically considered disabled, right? That's the marker for a certain type of mental disability. Is this test? Um, or if you want to be considered a genius, you got to get uh, you know above this level on the test. Um, but what you're really measuring is how well you do on that test, not you know how smart you are, because you can have a high IQ and not really be competent. Um, which I sometimes think is true of me. But anyway. So that was Chris. And the thing about Chris is that he really benefited from institutional power. Um, he had these views that, he, you know, he would say other things about groups of people, but he would always say it in a way that uh, brought up exceptions, you know. Um, so it didn't seem racist, right? It didn't seem like eugenics. But if you dig deep into what he was saying, it was always. The exceptional people among these groups prove that the entire group isn't bad, but it's only the exceptional people that deserve to be celebrated. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, this whole college admissions process is absurd, so I can't really, like, anyone who's messing with the process, you know what, I mean, people who have less power, I mean... Uh, more power to you but people with a lot of power who are rigging the system to make things even easier for them when they already have plenty of power the man got into university of well i shouldn't say he got into a very good university early and you know the practice is if you get in early you're supposed to go Um, but he didn't want to go so he decided not to go and that marks you very negatively if you are not who he was Um, and then he went to a different school and He was getting his tuition paid for by my school, as in my high school, because his dad was very prominent there. Um, And he didn't really take it seriously. Took him five years to get through school. Five years? I'm not dissing anybody for that. I'm just saying the only reason he took him a long time to get through school is because he wasn't taking it seriously. Um, And you know, is the kind of person who's gotten like ninety six thousand chances. Shouldn't everybody get that many chances? Yes. It's not to say that what happened to him is bad. It's more that we all know that that's not the case for everybody. And I think about how, you know, even at a young age, he had very crystallized and very erudite, right? These were not, you know, unformed thoughts he had about who was exceptional and who wasn't. And, you know, the few times I've seen him in adulthood, very little has changed there. Um, Lacks boundaries in any real way. And uh, I think it shows that the institutional power that was given to him as a small persons carried over into uh, the way that he sees people in general. So that's one part of the Eugenicist's best friend story because uh, I was at one time his best friend. I was and remain Black. Um, and I don't think... Just in general, he had any respect for black people whatsoever because he saw me as an exception or some sort of special version of the group. And I think about that and other examples a lot. So that was about Chris. And let's talk about Mike. Um... Mike was a year ahead of me, uh, and just like Chris, I knew him for a lot of my life, but because we were not in the same grade, we didn't take class together until I was in middle school. So I, you may not know this about me, but I was a little math kid. Um, part of the reason that I was so young and the grades I was in is because I was in like kindergarten I was like doing long division or something. I don't know. I can't do. I can barely divide. I can't, I can divide, but I can't do long division now because that's what calculators are for. They used to tell us, you never have a calculator in your pocket. Oh, but we all do now, don't we? Anyway. So, anyway, that's part of the reason I was a, a year ahead in school and then another year ahead in math. So, by the time I was in like se- sixth grade, I was like 10, and I was in like seventh grade math. Um, and. Then in seventh grade, I was in eighth grade math. And in that class is when I spent some time with Mike. So Mike, like I said, is a year ahead of me. And um, he also lived near school. Both of them lived near school, and they both had houses somewhere. In this case, I think Mike's family had a house in the Hamptons. Um, And Mike was always... We didn't really have bullies at my school. If like if there had been one, he might have been one, but we didn't really do that, which I guess is good. But um, he was he was that type of person. Just I don't think he ever really you know hit anybody with his fist. But for whatever reason, he liked me, um, and I liked being liked. You know, just like Chris. You know, he's uh, obviously a white. I would I would say man, but he's a boy at the time, um, and. Unlike Chris, he was not known for his particular like talents in writing or, or computers or anything like that. He was a pretty work-a-day type of student. Um, but he'd been accepted into the school, so that means that he was considered gifted in some way, right? Again, what does gifted mean? Um, I was kind of interesting that he was there just because... In so many ways looking back, it was not particularly remarkable. But I think the school wanted, <laughs> wanted diversity in terms of the students they had. They didn't want to have only a bunch of like Alina Dunham types. And I use that example on purpose because she was a year behind me. We need to talk about her though. Um anyway, he was kind of like a he was, was like a hockey referee, you know. Um and his mom was a stay-at-home mom. This was not common at my school, right? Like a lot of these families had plenty of money, but they, you know, they had nannies. So we had a, I had a babysitter who picked me up. We had, I had a lot of baby. It was like rotating. Um, I don't mean like a, a team. I mean like they didn't always last that long. I don't know. I was a pretty annoying kid. <laughs> um, but, anyways, mom was a stay-at-home mom. I think maybe in the '90s it would have been homemaker. I don't know. And his dad worked for a bank. He was a banker. Um, And they were some of the only vocal conservatives at my school. Like um, Chris, from the first half of this, you know, very nominally progressive people. But, you know, eugenicists. Mike, just a straight up Republican. And I didn't really pay attention to this in seventh grade, you know, I don't think I really paid attention to politics until the Clinton scandals and even then, like I I was just like, yeah, okay, Clinton, whatever I don't care, I don't, Just, I mean like, you know but uh, he was one of the only people at my school who was like outraged by the Clinton situation I'm not saying what Clinton did was okay, I'm just saying he's the only one who talked about it you know, and like what eighth graders talking about it, which in retrospect means his parents were talking about it very, you know, traditional toxic masculinity home, you know, several brothers and like a banker dad whose wife didn't work. And, um, the thing about Mike is again, he, he took a liking to me, and it was his house that I actually went to on September 11th when that house ha- in Brooklyn and, um, Portland Heights. We weren't really in danger, but we didn't know that we weren't in danger. And they told us to, to leave and they were seeing if we're, we, we, you know, could we be safe and all the phones were down and so forth. So um, I went to his house, which was a few blocks away from school. And then I went back to school to get my sister who was in third grade or something. And so that we stayed there for a while. Now in retrospect, they were watching Fox news but I don't think I knew what Fox News was in two thousand and one. I, I thought I probably assumed it was literally just an offshoot of Fox, like the you know, Fox five in New York. Um and they were saying a whole bunch of wild shit about who had done it. You know. Um and the thing is, I didn't know what had happened, so who was I to say at age fifteen that they were wrong and, you know, being Islamophobic and Racists and so forth like they weren't using any slurs because even the people like this who like in retrospect if i think about chris and the way he talked about different races um you know it's like oh wow if you really analyze that you can see that. but like these people were like out and out racist but even they didn't use slurs like that's how in, in new york you know like it's not that people aren't racist it's that we know we don't use slurs so if you use slurs, it's like whoa this person is deeply unhinged what are you doing right um Again, I've had slurs used against me, but so his conservative ideals and race came together a lot. Um, and it wasn't just race; it was he would say absurd things like he could never go to San Francisco because more than fifty percent of people in San Francisco were gay. He said that. I said that doesn't make any sense. Like, it's not possible. I mean, I guess i would be kind of cool, but it's just not possible. I said, I don't know, what is it? Maybe, maybe 15, 20%. This is before you could just Google a fact like that. I mean, Google, I'm sure, Google started in 1996, but this is like 2000 and people couldn't just like, let me find the answer on Wikipedia or whatever it is. Um, And he said, whatever it is, it's too much. And the thing is, I hadn't done any reading or studying about uh, sexuality. So although I knew what he said was wrong, I didn't push back hard enough on it because I wanted him to like me. Um, he also told me that there were no black women that were attractive. Um, and I was, I, 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 I the problem with this is whenever I would encounter these, these forms of racism that were not you know, a direct slur, you, you, I would try to argue with them on the merits, on the facts, on the numbers, right? Which is why I've stopped doing that, right? When people come at me with some racist fact about percentage of killing, like, you can't argue with these people on the facts, because you come up with one, they're just gonna come up with another one, right? That That's, I'm getting to the point here. I'm not just telling these stories for for no reason, right? So I would say, well, what about, this is 2000 or 99, I said, what about Aaliyah, Which still makes me sad to think about. Um, He's like, no, can't be. Right. And I'm just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, And I couldn't understand. And it's also because later, um, as I got out in the dating world, you know, I would hear that people said, well, I just have a preference and my preference is Italian guys. I'm just giving an example. I'm not making fun of Italians. My wife's family is Italian or part Italian. Uh, And I'm like, so, so white guys. Right. They're like, not just just telling. I'm just like, OK, because um, I've, I've never been that person who's like, well, people just have racial preferences in who they date. Maybe they do, but there's always a reason why. Is it always racism? No, maybe not. But if your preferences enforce it so that you don't actually date people from racialized groups. Well, you probably shouldn't date people from racialized groups because you're probably racist. but. Uh, <laughs> you should figure that out, but if you're listening to this podcast, one would hope you don't do things like that anyway. So he told me no black people are no, sorry, no black women are attractive he said he you know he he reserved most of his hatred for gay people, plenty of his hatred for women, but you know the whole point like he he and he got special treatment in the school, like the reason I'm bringing them up is because both of these people had what was objectively terrible classroom behavior. Uh Mike would sing and just act out in class, things that if he had been a Black kid at a public school, or, you know, he would have been put in the, like, the, the deepest of disabled, you know, uh, emotionally disturbed holes, right? Uh, and if he'd even been me, he would have been punished more severely. Again, I didn't get thrown out of school or anything like that, but I was... Pathologized and ostracized um, by some of the students. And that's why it was so difficult for me to reject people like Mike and Chris because these people were nice to me. And that's the thing, you know, people keep wondering why there's always a few black people around Trump, you know, somewhere. He doesn't hire them to do anything important but like you got a Carson in there, right? You got Lynn Patton, you know, how is Mitch McConnell's wife Asian, right? but these people are deeply racist. Well, you know, if they're, it, it's very difficult for, part of the thing that's hard for people to understand is that being interpersonally nice to people does not mean that people cannot support a system that's oppressive and violent and so forth. Um, and being attracted to somebody means nothing considering what Thomas Jefferson was up to. But uh. These people were, were they, they took a shine to me. I, and you know, one of the things I grapple with is that, like, these people genuinely have an antipathy, not antipathy, antipathy is the wrong word, just a lack of respect for the humanity of Black people. Uh, in Mike's case, for gay people, and in both of their cases, for women. Well, let's, or at the time, girls, but let's be clear, as adults, these were not men who respect women. Um, Chris got into that pickup stuff eventually, you know, the like negging and all that. He told me about it. Uh, and I was like, wait, you just, so you insult people until they feel bad and then you try to sleep with them? Yeah. So these are not like, let's be clear. They're not just racist. These are just bad people. But at the time I didn't know all this. Uh, so talk about Mike now through time, you know, it became clear that he was every like carbon copy of a conservative talking point at the time i didn't know what the conservative talking points were because at my school and in the environment i was in they weren't that common so he seemed like a like a rebel to be different and i admired that nonsense you know he used to say that the new york police department was the greatest police department in the world The whole statement, I mean, what does greatest mean? Does it mean effective, right, at their goal, their stated goal? Does it mean effective at their stated goal, which is to keep crime down and so forth? In that case, well, crime is pretty low in New York these days. One could say something like that. But let's remember that the police's real goal is to protect the property of the powerful. The property, including whiteness. In that sense, they're pretty good at it too. So uh, the funny thing is, he, he had no idea what he was really saying, but he might not have been wrong. The New York Police Department is very good at protecting whiteness and protecting white people's property, literally and ideologically. So this is the thing about him, though. He wanted to be a cop. His whole life, Mike kept talking about being a cop. And he, you know, he had a ton of money, this kid, right? And the cops, generally speaking, like, they, they make a fair amount of money, but they don't tend to grow up wealthy, you know, unless their dad is a sergeant or something like that. And nobody really believed he would go through with it. You know? Uh, and then he did. Mike Graduated high school, he went to college, and then he became. He went through the academy, and he became a cop. This person who believed only that special black people like me or special women like presumably the, his mother and the woman he married um, deserve respect, I, I doubt he's. I, I doubt he's come around on gay people, but he's probably stopped saying the things he's saying. Uh, he became a cop. Now, here's the thing about it, though. If that were the end of the story, it would be sad. to be like, well, let's see who our cops are, right? It's, it's these people with these views. Yeah, but then he quit. And he quit because, in his words, like he was being fast-tracked to detective, right? He was walking to B, and they were fast-tracking him to detective. And he quit. Because, in his words, cops were too dumb. Now, I'm not endorsing this language. I'm just saying that's what he said. He didn't quit because they're racist. Didn't quit because they're hateful. Didn't quit because what they were doing is bad. He quit because he thought that he was smarter than they were. And in terms of the way intelligence is judged, probably so. But let's think about what that means about the police, by the way. That means the police have views as bad as this man does but they're less intellectually gifted let's put it that way i don't know how to describe it right so it's basically like (laughs) uh people who like like mike with worse impulse control that's who's on the streets people that's who the police are um But then he went and he went to business school and now he does hedge fund stuff. And frankly, he probably causes a lot more damage doing that. Uh, Chris worked at various tech companies. He kept quitting because nothing matters in his world and he'll do whatever he wants. I sound like I'm bitter towards them, but they haven't, again, they have not been mean to me. These people, if they hear this, they'd be mad, but I don't care. Uh, They have not been mean to me. They were always nice to me. I didn't say kind, but nice, right? There were times when Chris said mean stuff to me. But the point is, you know, I was always his good friend. We got into a fight at one point, not a physical fight, but like an argument at one point 10 years ago. But um, this is not because of that. We patched it up and, you know, we don't really hang out anymore. But like these people were interpersonally nice to me. And the main message I want and I hope this episode hasn't been boring. But the main message I want to share here is if you are a Black person or a woman or, you know, a LGBTQ person, um, and you are being told things about your group by the dominant group, especially when you're a kid, you know, there's no kids listening to this, but especially when you were a kid, right, if you are the only, right, You're the only face, right? The only body that's like you, right? And you say to yourself, well, this person can't oppress my group because they're nice to me. I just want to be clear. You know... All of these worst people, all of these really oppressive people, all of these racist people, right, they all have exceptions in their life, whether it's an attraction thing, whether it's they value you for a particular talent you have, like you're an athlete or you're an artist or something. All of these horrible people who do horrible things and uphold the system of whiteness and capitalism and so forth, they all have an exception. They all know they're supposed to not only say they have a black friend, they want to actually have one. Right? It's like that episode of Sex and the City, which I'm not necessarily endorsing as a profound show, but there's an interesting part where, right, where, Mar- where they, the rich couple thinks Miranda's gay, and so she brings a, a, a female partner to a, a dinner party, and then she tells the guy, oh, I'm not actually gay, and the partner said, oh, we were hoping to add a gay couple to our group. Right? It's like that. Right? It's like Captain Planet, one of each. Right? If you are the only, you got to be careful. Because these people were were interpersonally nice to me. But if they saw me on the street and they didn't know me, right? Or even less so, uh, if I was part of a group that was suffering and they didn't think about the fact that their friend was there, they wouldn't think twice before, you know choosing to harm my group. They thought I was an exception, but I'm still part of this group, right? I'm still Black. And when I think about how close I was, you know, I this informs a lot of my research and my scholarship is that I was so close to people like this. I mean, literally close, but also um, emotionally close to people like this. Like I, I have, I feel, a, a, I can never be inside the room when it's only white people and not just white people, but white people with money and a certain type of think they're not racist white people with money. I can't be in the room when it's only them because by being there, it's not only them. But when I write, when I speak, um, I'm thinking about, Mike and Chris, a lot. I'm thinking about um, how the people who I spent a lot of my time with, and it doesn't mean I didn't have Black friends. I had plenty of Black friends, and, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying the people who I did spend a fair amount of my time with at this school are, are people who, you know, if I hadn't been good at certain aspects of school, would have thought I was a lesser person. And not just lesser, but, you know, worth reproducing out of the race, the human race, right? That's eugenics. The only thing that saved me from their complete and utter uh, lack of care for me as a human was that I was good at certain aspects of school. And remember, what does it mean to be good at school? It means being good at a certain type of whiteness, even if you're not white. So in a way, whiteness gave me a reprieve because I was good at certain aspects of it. But because I still wasn't, it meant that I got, you know, told so many things that were in retrospect, pretty traumatizing to actually experience from people who you trusted. Um, There's some of the things that I've dealt with, um, you know, in in sessions and in, in, in the writing I do. And I have a chapter that's, partially about Mike and Chris coming out next year um, and how the school, you know, didn't really support me. I say all this to say, you know, all this stuff, whatever happened last week in the election and whatever happens going forward, the federal government is as troublesome as they are, as bad as they could be becoming or as bad as they always will be because the country is a sham, uh, it's really gonna be about, I think, the institutions that we work in, that we live in, the communities we live in. This is why I realized that as much as my parents really wanted to protect me from, from racism, uh, I just really got a close-up view of a of a type of racism that was in deep denial. Nobody laid a hand on me, but over time it became clear that i wasn't really a person so it's one of the reasons why i realized that you know if we do what we want to do uh and we're able to live in an area that's not predominantly white right now my area is pretty mixed but you know in in the future we might move to some place not outside of the new york area but don't, don't worry um and I just think that I'm not a therapist, right? I've been to some, still go every so often now, but I can't fix this for Ezel. I can't send him to a school where he's one of the only racialized kids and you know, my parents tried to prepare me for the overt, the slurs, you know, see if you're treating, treat it differently. And because these people, these people who are looking back were, were you know, deeply racist, um, were treating me kindly or nicely or smiling at me, it was really hard to see, to see the the damage of it. So I can't fix that for him because it took me decade, decade and a half to figure out all the damage that had been done. I can't do that for him. I'm not a doctor. And, you know, again, he's not going to figure it out until far after the fact. I can help him if the school isn't that great. And again, what does it mean for a good school? But if he's at a school and he's a little bored, you know, I am literally a teacher. I can help him with that. Um, I can advocate for him if I feel like the school is not giving him enough. I can't undo these experiences that I've had and I can't undo them if I put him in the position to be the best friend of the eugenicist, right? So none of you should ever be afraid if you see a a vowed racist with one black friend. In fact... I would almost respect an avowed racist who had no black friends more than with one, because with one, it just means that they're a vessel for their racism, you know, where they don't see them as a person, but it's just a, uh, a surface level target. And frankly, like a David Duke, all those people, I'm not talking about that, but like If you are a person who listens to this and you think, well, it's great. I really, I I have, you know, I'm glad that I don't do that. I don't find one black person and tell them my horrible views that are, you know, don't have slurs in them and so forth. Yeah, okay, but where did you grow up, though? Still think about that. Like, what what percentage of people in your town were, were, were different from you, right? Or your neighborhood, right? What about your school? Where where you work? What if you got married? Who's in your wedding picture? Who's in your wedding party, right? I'm not saying to go find a token because you're gonna end up doing this nonsense. Uh, I'm saying just sort of think about who's, who's in your circle and if you have kids, who's in their circle? Because... I doubt anyone listening to this is going to have some overt racist bully friend or kid, but you might know Sonya Genesis and they might be your friends.